Welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. She's getting on her earrings. She's ready to go. The husband is sitting at the kitchen table and he's in his underwear and he's drinking coffee and he's reading the paper. And the wife says, honey, we need to go. We're going to be late. We have to get out the door. We don't have time for you to do what you're doing. And he said, I'm not going to church. And she said, oh, really? How about you tell me why? He said, I don't think those people like me and I don't like them. So I don't want to go. And she said, you are going to go to church, and let me tell you two reasons why. The first one is, you need to read your Bible, and you need to get close to God. The second reason is, you're the pastor. <laughs> so put on your pants. Sometimes we are like, we know we ought to do something, but we don't really want to do it. But we know if we did it, we'd be glad we did it. But we put it off, even though you don't, you know, like you know you should do something even if you know it's good for you. Going to church, reading the Bible, getting closer to God. These are things that are good, even things that we wish for our children. But sometimes as adults, we tend to put them off or think I'll do it later. And when people come and, and they have honest questions, good skeptical questions that I respect, things like, isn't the Bible a myth? Or uh, isn't Christianity all a bunch of rules? Isn't the Bible just a dusty old book? When people ask these sort of questions or accusations, I have sympathy. But I also realize that under the surface, there's more going on to those questions. They could just be a smokescreen that prevent us from doing what we know we ought to do, from avoiding the real questions. And Jesus gets kind of to the point of this in John chapter 3. He says, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Is there another one? Is there more? There we go. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already. Because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that they may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. So Jesus gets right to the point. He's saying, here people have a choice. You can come freely into the light or you can remain in darkness. This doesn't mean that people's opinions and doubts aren't valid. They are. They should be listened to and respected. I think church should be a place where questions are encouraged, not sent away. Doubt is a part of faith. They're actually linked. If you're walking with Christ and you're like, you're going to have doubts. It's natural. It's, it's, it's just going to happen. There's nothing wrong with that. But we also should doubt our doubts. That doubt is not a virtue. That we should leverage the doubt as a stepping stone toward God, toward the light, instead of a, a, a fuel to push you away from God or to get more into the darkness. Because people came with Jesus with questions all the time. And he always returned the question many times with a question. He doesn't make up people's minds for them. He allows them to come to their own understanding of what he's trying to say. And he asks questions back to the questioner. Because when you do that, you make people question their own assumptions. 
You make them make up their own mind. And it addresses the felt needs of the person when you question the questioner. So when people say, isn't the Bible just a myth? Isn't it all just made up stories of the fairy God in the sky? By and by, that old saying. I think underneath all of that is deeper stuff. What people are really asking is, can I trust God? Can I trust what the Bible actually says? So that's why the next four weeks, Jeff and I are going to be addressing some of these honest, good, skeptical questions that many, many people in our culture are asking. And the church should be ready and willing to have a dialogue about. So in many ways, what we're doing is a thing called apologetics. That doesn't mean we're apologizing. It's a Greek word, apologia. And it means that you're giving a defense of the faith. You're giving real reasons for why you believe what you believe. 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter the apostle talks about this. He says, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Here's a simple fisherman, Peter. And he's saying, there are real reasons that you believe in Christ. But you need to remember the needs of the listener. That it's not about being right. It's not about just making a point. It's about making a friend. And we have to remember that when we talk about this stuff. We're not up here to win an argument. We're up here to help people understand a bit more of these questions. And the first one of this week is, isn't the Bible just a myth? Now, this is based on the book by Tim Keller called um, Reason for God. And there's some on these tables on each side of the room. You can take one home with you totally free. Just take it. If we run out, we'll get more. Uh, we want people to be reading along if you'd like or pick it up on your own, get it on your Kindle. Great book by Tim Keller. So the question is, isn't the Bible a myth? A friend of mine went to UNC Chapel Hill. Anybody here go to Chapel Hill? I promise I'm not going to shame you at all. Um, and he was a religion major, and he took an introduction to New Testament class with a famed skeptic, pretty successful author, named Bart Ehrman. And he uh, was on the, the Colbert Report a couple of times. I remember watching that back in the day. Um, and he's a famed skeptic. And when the first day of, the, of the, the, the course, he asked the hundreds of students in the room, he'll say, how many of you hold that the Bible is God's infallible word? Most of the people in the room are Christians, and they raise their hands. Then he asked, how many of you have, you have read Harry Potter books all the way through? Almost every hand goes up, right? <laughs> he then asked, how many of you read the Bible all the way through? Almost no hands go up. You probably get to Leviticus and you just really hit a roadblock, right? Like a lot of people. Leviticus is actually pretty great. But his point he's making is that you believe in something you haven't even read. And then when you do, you put it on the shelf next to fantasy of J.K. Rowling. The next day in the class, you come in with a can of Diet Pepsi and he sits down. And then the assignment is to have students write on paper what happened from the moment he walked into the room to the moment he began to teach. Exact the details of the whole experience. None of the students had anything in the right order. Many of them had omitted key events. And so the lesson learned is that how the scripture was transmitted from the beginning to now, you can't trust it. It can't be trusted because people won't get it right throughout history. I know what you're thinking. Wow, I'm really glad I came to church today. I really feel built up this moment. <laughs> but airmen and many like him, they see the New Testament as fantasy, as myth. There's gleanings of truth, 
but it's so corrupted you can't fully believe it. And a big argument is that the transmission of information over time has not been truthful. But see, many skeptics and people like him have double standards with works of antiquity, with ancient writings. When it comes to Beowulf, one of the oldest manuscripts in the history of the, the earth, there's no original manuscripts. Or the Iliad, there's no original manuscripts. But we don't hear any criticism of that. But when it comes to the Bible, which has tens of thousands of copies, dating back, many of the New Testament, dating back to within 10 or 15 years of Jesus' life. We have a double standard at play where we treat the Bible with much different standards than we do with other work of antiquity. Why do people do that? I think on a deeper level, they're more willing to stay in the darkness than come to the light. They're more willing to do that. Because the postmodern mind sees Jesus as just one more attempt at explaining what we wish were true. Almost like a wish fulfillment. That, that there are elements in myth that we want to be true, that gods do reveal themselves to us, that mysteries in heaven can be known on some real level, but that these reach the deepest longings of humankind. There's, these are things that we want to be true, but the skeptical mind says, no, they're not true. There's just wish fulfillment. It's a crutch. It's kind of cynical. But see, Christianity takes it one step further. We claim that these are stories that we know on some real level, they had to be true. Because the want, the desire, is indication of something beyond a myth. Myths stay in history. They're not applicable to today's life. Even G.K. Chesterton said that myth has at least an imaginative outline of truth. That there's gleaning in myth of truth. So like, for example, the Greek myths of a long time ago, they point to a need for a hero, that gods are real, that they're helping people, supernatural intervention. But C.S. Lewis takes this a step further. He says that Christianity is a true myth. It's a funny little play on words he does there. But that the Bible backs up its mythic claims. There are real reasons that the Bible is not a myth. It's not made up. The first one is that there's an, an honesty to the text. It's an honesty that the Bible is 66 books, almost 40 authors, over 1,400 years, variety of types of literature, history, philosophy, poetry. And, it, and the Bible stands out among other religious literature. If you look at the Quran in, in Islam, they see the, the Quran as the perfect expression of Allah. Word for word, you cannot alter it. Clearly the Bible does not have verbal perfection, but it does have systemic perfection. It's all pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. There are over, there's almost 86 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled every single one. He fulfilled every single one. There's, there's just things like that that show you that the Bible is not a myth. That it's a true, it's God speaking through it, pointing to the person of Christ. And it's honest. It's not ashamed of its warts. It's very real. You know, you've ever met people in your life who are painfully honest? Like, they almost hurt your feelings, they're so painfully honest. Like, I know you're not lying right now, but I kind of wish you were, right? Those kind of people. It's sort of like the story of the Sunday school teacher that's teaching their, little, their kids in class about honesty. And the teacher says, do you know where children go if they don't put your money in the collection plate? And a little boy says, yeah, I know where they go. They go to the movies, right? <laughs> that, right? I know where they go. 
You're being painfully honest right now, but I know you're not lying. In the same way, the Bible will welcome scrutiny. It's, it's kind of messy. It's kind of all over the place. 1,400 years of human history. It's a lot like life. It's God using the imperfect situations of our world and people, and he's transmitting a perfect message through the power of the Holy Spirit. That God chooses to reveal his, word, his will to us through the word. And there's an honesty there, an authenticity. It's like when Jesus is resurrected, and the first people that come to the tomb are who? Who can, whom? Who can tell me? Mary. Mary. They're all women, right? They're all women. If they were writing the New Testament in a way that would have sounded uh, palatable to the culture back then, they would not have said women were the first ones to go. Women were deemed as property. They couldn't vote. They couldn't, they couldn't testify in court. It was awful. And if they were writing as it really happened, that's, that's a testimony that they wrote the truth. This is what happened. The women were there to check on Jesus' body. They were the first ones to discover. Or another thing, that John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. If I was writing the Gospel of Luke, I would not have said that. You wouldn't have said Jesus is the one baptizing everybody. He never baptized anybody. That you had John the Baptist doing it. That points to the honesty, the authenticity of the Scripture. And don't get me started on the virgin birth. I mean, you wouldn't write that. And that's prophesied in the book of Micah. That, that he would come from Bethlehem, born of a virgin, or Zechariah. And then, of course, you've got the failings of King David. Moses murdering somebody. Saul in his fall as the king of Israel. Peter denying Christ three times. And again, don't get me started on the nation of Israel. If you've read the Old Testament, they're a hot mess. If they, they wrote it as it really happened. And the last thing is that even... Uh, Peter, in the book of 2 Peter, he refers to Paul's writings as scripture. Paul and Peter were contemporaries. He's referring to Paul's letters to the Romans and Philippians, etc. He's referring to them as scripture that, at that time. He's saying that it didn't become scripture later. That God had already been blessing and using it around the world. It's sort of like how no one would deem Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, symphony passed down through the centuries that now it's all of a sudden a masterpiece. It was a masterpiece when the people first heard it. We're simply affirming it today. That's how it was with the scripture in the first through third centuries. They acknowledged it as authoritative. The second reason is that there's an archaeological evidence that's just simply overwhelming. All of my friends who have been to the Holy Land and traveled, they'll come back just awestruck because they can physically go to these places that are stated in the Bible. All of them. They're not made up. They're real physical locations. I read in an archaeological magazine a few years ago that they discovered the city of Sodom. They found the perimeter of a city. They even found, get this, traces of brimstone still in the soil. And that's pretty wild. There's archaeological evidence. There's also evidence for Jesus outside of the Bible. In the Jewish historical document called the Talmud, they refer to Jesus as a wicked sorcerer. Now, that's, of course, we know that's not true, but they're referring that, that he existed, he's real. Because a lot of skeptics will say, well, the Bible has just made it up, and uh, it's, you know, it's, there's no evidence outside of it, but that's not true. Even the historian Josephus has, has documented that Jesus was a real human being outside of the Scripture. And, so, and also, like when I read the Gospels, and you read Jesus' words, you can't make this stuff up. Shakespeare and all of his brilliance would never have been able to create the words of Jesus. No one talks like him, right? That alone is evidence for the, the authenticity, the honesty, the realness of, 
of the word. And there was an experience, a thing that happened in 1949, which you would consider the moon landing of biblical um, interpretation and history. And it was the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. A shepherd and his son are out shepherding their sheep. And uh, the little boy throws a rock into a cave nearby. And he hears something break. And they go in and they see all these hundreds of scrolls. It wasn't one cave. It was many, many caves, dozens of caves, where they found um, scrolls and um, uh, clay tablets and all these writings. And what, what did the shepherd do with some of these uh, pieces of papyrus that he found? They made sandals out of them and started walking around. But in those caves, they found a lot of remarkable things. But one was an entire scroll of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. The whole thing in a huge scroll. It doesn't have numbers in it. That's our thing now. Back then, it was just all Isaiah. And when they compared that scroll of Isaiah to what your Bible says today, it is 99.8% the exact same as what that scroll said. The only difference were some um, differences in punctuation. I mean, that is huge. And then another thing is that Jesus refers to Scripture as authoritative. He never refers to it in a myth sort of way. He never says, well, Deuteronomy might say this, or Genesis, I'm not sure about. He always quotes it with authority. That's the Son of God quoting Scripture. I mean, here's some of his endorsements right here, Matthew 5, 18. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means will pass from the law until all this is accomplished. And then in John chapter 10, he also says, And you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. That here's the Son of God referring to scripture in a way that's not mythic, that it's with authority. And then lastly, another reason the Bible's not a myth is simply the personal experience people have with it. If you read church history, and all the men and women throughout the ages who have been affected by re simply reading the Bible, Martin Luther John Wesley, Augustine, which ironically they all read Romans, and different pieces of Romans changed their lives. But people throughout history have read scripture and it has changed them. And so you have to think, what is that? I mean, I appreciate history in the Iliad, but I don't see anyone's life being transformed by it. That they read the Bible and it changed the course of history. And you and I could do the same thing today. And God could use us to change history. I don't know how many times I've read the scriptures on my own, and sometimes, you, I know this has happened to some of you, some phrases or words will jump out to you at certain times in your life that really meant a lot to you for that day. Or it's like God speaks to us through it. It's the main way God communicates to people. And it's just incredible that there's a vibrancy and a relevancy to the Bible that still maintains today. It's still the most popular book in the world so why does its message continue to resonate? What is it about it? Because if it's only myth, it stays in history, and that's where it remains. But it's still moving along throughout the world today and changing lives. The preacher and evangelist Ravi Zacharias gives an answer. He says one reason that the scripture, that Christianity as a whole can change people's lives is because it offers answers to the four basic needs of people's lives. He says it's origin, meaning, reality, and destiny. That Christianity provides us with an origin for our lives. It gives us an answer for the human condition as sinners. And also points to an answer that of redemption through Christ, of new life in Christ. It helps us find our meaning in life. That it shows us the reality of our world. And it also points toward a destiny. 
of something beyond the grave that points beyond. And for a worldview to be true, there must be coherence between those four things, origin, meaning, reality, and destiny. And the Bible fulfills all of them. That the Bible ultimately points to a Messiah repeatedly. And he is the hero figure that the myths of old pointed toward in some way, but they couldn't produce. In the Bible, myth has become fact. And we have to experience the gospel for ourselves. Because sometimes, you know, you really know you ought to do something. And even if you know it's good for you, and you know you should, but you don't know how, or you, you kind of put it off until later. It, amaz- it amazes me how the work of God is such, on such small levels. People tend to think in big, sweeping, dramatic ways. But God always works in these unseen, innocuous ways. I mean, the Son of God comes through the birth of a virgin, born in a stable, probably a cave. No one, hardly no one knew. I mean, think about your own life, your own discipleship. Where does most of the change happen in your spiritual life? Somewhere small, alone, in a room, praying. Maybe where just two or three of you are gathered. See, sometimes Christians, where Jesus says, where two or three of you are gathered, there I am among you. We use that phrase as sort of like, like a magic you know, incantation. Like, oh, Jesus is here with us, we're all together. But I think what he's actually saying is that what if that is his preferred method of discipleship with us? Small, growing together in groups. That the, the work of God happens in ways much like a mustard seed. Little, small. It's sort of like you could come to Christ today. You could give your life to Jesus if you're not a religious person. You could do it here and now, right at this very moment. And you could feel absolutely nothing. You could have no emotional response whatsoever. And that's okay. And maybe, maybe you would. I don't know how God would deal with you. He'll, he'll do it in a perfect way. But a lot of times, you could give your life to Christ. You say, Christ, I give you my life. I, I want to become a Christian. And in the moment, you could feel nothing. But over time, your love for God, your love for church, your, your hunger for righteousness, your love for your neighbor, it will all start to change. It's almost like a seed being planted. And at first, no one even knows it's there. But over time, it grows into something beautiful and life-giving and real. That God works in these small ways in our lives. See, becoming a Christian, it's not just a leap of faith. It's not a shot in the dark. That our faith, it doesn't have to go against reason. There are reasonable ways that we can believe the Bible is true. And that the gospel is true. To trust that the words of scripture are true. And that they can change us. It's not a myth. And many of our lives are evidence of that. So let us pray together. God in heaven, we thank you for the reality of your word. We thank you that we can trust in your ways. And I pray for anybody here today that they're struggling. They're burdened. And they want to know, God, are you real? Can I trust your promises for my life? Can I know peace with God? And the answer, of course, is yes. But we can come by faith to you at this very moment. It's not only about emotionally feeling something. It's simply by faith. Your word says that all who will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, what good news that is. That your word shows us our dilemma. And you also show us our remedy. And that answer is and always will be Jesus. Jesus. 
that your word has pointed toward for centuries and will continue to point toward until you return. We thank you, God, that you are good and you love us and you receive us as your own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we...